G'day everyone. That was my baby on the picture before. Uh, he's at the bank there. I love how Steph said, things must be going very well. And I just sat there going, no, they're not. <laughs> no, it's going very well. Thanks for all your messages and, uh, and love and prayer. Uh, we're, we're thrilled for the birth of little Nate. Uh, it's great. If we haven't met yet, my name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at church. Um, and how great is it to be here together, to gather in this number? I love it uh, that we're able to get back slowly but surely uh, to where we were. And I love that we're in the middle, in fact, the very end of this summer series. If you've been with us over the last three weeks or so, I hope you've enjoyed wrestling with some of these topics. It's been a fascinating series. If it's your first week with us, the idea is that every summer at EV, we go around and ask the coast if they have any questions for God, questions about life or the Bible or whatever, and then we try to answer them in this series. Today's topic, uh, I think, is a really relevant one for our culture, and it's this, would God be good news if I knew he was there and loved me? In other words, think of it this way, what would it take for God to be good news for me? And the, I guess the statement we're looking at today is it would take him to be there for me to know that and for me to know that he loved me. It's a wonderful question. Well, it's, I suppose it's two questions. Questions of evidence. I need to know for sure God is there. But I also need to know for sure that he cares. I think the options before us are fairly straightforward, but they're worth talking about. Option one, God isn't there. Subsequently, he doesn't care. So subsequently to that, we shouldn't care either. Two, God is there, but he doesn't care. God has made the world, he's put it all together, but walked away. And if that's the case, well, who cares what he says or thinks? But option three, there is a God who is real, who's made everything, who knows you, who has made you, and who cares and loves for you. Well, if that's true, that changes everything. I was in love with my wife, Sammy, for around six months before she had any idea uh, I was interested. And that's not because I was so cowardly, I couldn't tell her, although I am very cowardly, let me assure you. Um, it was that she had a boyfriend, and this guy was six foot six, tall, dark, and handsome. Make it clear, I'm not talking about myself, I'm only six foot two. Uh, <laughs> this, you know, very proficient guy, and I was like, well, I, what could I do? All I could do is the thing that every Christian man, man tries to do to impress a woman when acting like we're not, vacuum after church, move chairs after church, serve food after church, cuddle other people's babies after church, and all the things which you think will make an impact. I did all of that and still nothing. But then finally, six months down the track, I got the news, two bits of good news. One, someone called me and said, have you heard? I said, heard what? They said, Sam is single. And I, I was in the army at the time. I was on a break. Confession, I was on a smoke break. And I remember going, phew, phew, phew. I was, yes, oh my goodness. But the second bit of news was even better. A few weeks later, I asked her on a date. And after being creeped out for a little bit that I'd loved her for six months and not said anything, she said yes. It changed everything. I'll make a note about that date, though. We went on our first date, uh, and I bought a new shirt for it. And in tradition of every Australian man, particularly in the 1990s, I put that shirt in the dryer for like six hours beforehand. Men, do you know why we do this, you remember? To make the shirt tight, so that all my muscles would be on display. 
But it turned out Sam was far more interested in my character than my muscles. And second to that, the shirt didn't just go tighter, it went smaller. <laughs> and so I end up at this state, legit, Sam, is this a true story? Yes, it's, she's nodding. It's, I end up at this state looking like I was wearing a crop top with my snail tail and my belly button out as well. Nonetheless, she saw through it all, and here we are today. Knowing Sam was interested in me changed everything. It actually made me love her more. And that's continued over the last 10 years. Knowing, actually knowing someone's interest, well, it changes things. I wonder, do you understand what it means that there is a God who loves you? It changes everything, if it's true. It means you're not an accident. It means that you matter and you have intrinsic value. It means your life has a meaning and a purpose beyond that which you create for yourself. It also means, and this is crucial, that who God is, what he's like, what he likes, what he loves, what he hates, that matters deeply. And so today what we're going to be doing is looking at the evidence, looking at the Bible's evidence for what the Bible says about God's existence and God's affections, whether God is there and whether God cares. And then we're going to see if it's actually true, hopefully, looking into it, seeing how this has been displayed for us. And we're going to do that. And on one level, that's a fairly straightforward thing. But I do want to warn you as well, we're not just looking at the evidence for God's existence and his affections. We're also going to be thinking about its consequences. You see, what's good news for me and what's good news for you might be very different things indeed. What's good news for us and what's good news for God, well, that might be very different again. And it might well be, in fact, I promise you, that as we think about the consequences of God's existence and interest and care and love for your life, it might give you a choice, force you into a choice, which you find very difficult to make. And indeed, more than that, it will mean revealing truths about yourself, which you might have spent a lifetime avoiding. Doesn't that sound like fun? Oh my goodness, what a great time we're going to have together. <laughs> I can hardly wait. I'm going to pray, then we're going to look at this evidence together and have a think. If you're a prayer, shut your eyes, bear your heads, let's pray to our God. Father, thank you that you are a God who speaks, a God who cares, a God who is there. Lord, as we look at your word, help us to um, focus our hearts and souls on you and what you say to us. Um, help us to not leave here the same, but changed and transformed. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So the good news of the Bible is that both the statements of our theme today are true. God is there and he cares. And even better than that, well, not better, but equally good, God has made it possible for us to know. In fact, think of it this way. God wants you to know. He wants you to know that both these things are true. Now, the Bible is full of evidence of God's existence and affections. But we don't see it any more clearly in the Bible, and in fact in human history, I would argue, than in the life, and in particular, the death of Jesus of Nazareth. You see, it's in the death of Jesus of Nazareth that we see not only God's existence on full display, but also his deep love for you, his deep affection, his deep passion for you. And so today, what we're going to be doing is looking at three separate sections, three separate bits of evidence from the death of Jesus, and seeing what they say, and then putting them together and seeing the big picture of what's said. I do want to say a quick note for you, though. If you're at the position where you're like, man, I've thought about Jesus' death before, I'm yet to be convinced, are we really doing that again? 
If that's you, I, I know where you're coming from, because I've lived the majority of my life before I became a Christian in that position. But I do want to challenge you here. I want to challenge you, as we're getting to the start of the new year again, to look at this evidence with fresh eyes. Challenge yourself. I'm going to look at this critically with fresh eyes. Because I believe it's very possible that whilst you might have looked at the evidence of Jesus' death and resurrection before, it's possible you've missed integral clues, integral um, bits of the evidence which explain not just who died, but why, and not just why Jesus died, but what it means. So let's look at evidence number one. Uh, I'll call it the cross. The cross. Come back with me to the Bible reading that we had, uh, which is in Luke chapter, where was it? Luke 23, verse 44. Luke 23, verse 44. The first piece of evidence I'd love for you to consider is Jesus' death. Many of you will be familiar with the details. Jesus was tried on a Friday by the Romans, um, found guilty, handed over to the Roman executioners, brutally um, tortured, mocked, made fun of, and then eventually killed, put on a wooden cross and crucified. Cicero, the ancient historian, says... Crucifixion is the cruelest and most disgusting of penalties. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said crucifixion was the most pitiable of deaths. I put it to you that Jesus' death is the most famous death in history. That's probably beyond argument. There's no doubt about it. But I'll also say I believe that Jesus' death is probably the most famous scene in human history, the most famous one scene of human history. It's captured the world's imagination for the past 2,000 years. But because of its well-knownness, actually, there's a lot of danger that comes with that. Because it's very possible that for all of us here, we might have seen snapshots of Jesus' death, maybe visually, artwork or movies, or we've read the Bible before, or been to sermons, or whatever it is, and think we know what it's about when actually we've missed the entire point. I used to believe the power of Jesus' death, the significance, the spiritual significance of Jesus' death was tied up somehow with the brutality of crucifixion. Does that make sense? Because crucifixion is so brutal and so horrific and so different for us. We don't see it anymore, praise God. That actually, I used to think, well, because the cross is such a barbaric way to die, that must be why it's so powerful. But what's fascinating is when you actually look at the evidence, the eyewitness accounts, how little attention and fanfare is paid to the barbarity. How little attention and fanfare is paid to the brutality. Instead, the focus is somewhere else entirely. Have a look at the passage. Let's read it. Pay attention to now, in the crescendo of Jesus' crucifixion, the details that are actually given. Listen to this. Check this out. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. This is where the action is. This is the main event. It's not that the brutality isn't mentioned. Of course it is. But it's the, it's the color. It's the sideline. Here is what it's about. And we know that. 
Because the biographies of Matthew and Mark, also in the Bible, they verify the exact same thing. They have the exact same focus. Look what's missing. It's not this poetic display of Jesus' final words and sweat falling off his brow and his skin falling off. No. Three details which are on surface level, let's be frank, weird. Darkness falling over the whole land. The curtain of the temple being torn in two. Jesus quoting a psalm. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What is it all about? I became a Christian when I was 28. As I mentioned, I was in the army. I was a drinker, a womanizer, someone who thought very little about or of God. But I had a deep, dark secret in my past, which I was very careful not to let anyone know about. I was brought up going to church. My dad, my uncle, my brother, my brother-in-law, all pastors. I was baptized, confirmed, you name it, I did it. In my high school years, I even taught Sunday school, helped lead youth group, all these things. Suffice to say that the point I'm making is that there was a time in my life where I believed I understood Christianity. There was a time in my life I believed I got it. But the truth was, if you had asked me in those days to explain the scene that I've just read out, I would have had no idea. Do you? I wouldn't have been able to understand it, explain it, articulate it. I would have been baffled. So what is it all about? And how does it show God's existence and his affections, his love, his care? Well, to understand the cross, I think it's absolutely vital that you understand the second piece of evidence we're going to look at. To understand the cross, you have to understand the cup. What do I mean when I talk about the cup? Well, come with me now. 12 hours prior to Jesus being on the cross. It's around 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Jesus has just had his final supper with his disciples, and then he's gone off to pray at a place called the Mount of Olives and a garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes off on his own. He's separated from his disciples, and then he prays. So in your Bibles, if you've got it with you, turn to Luke 22. Just three verses here, verse 41, Luke 22. But I'll read it for you, and if you don't have a Bible, or if you do even... Imagine this scene, picture this scene, Luke 22, verse 41. This is Jesus. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood, falling to the ground. That's a very short scene. But within its words are details of Jesus which are absolutely unique to the biographies. Absolutely unique to all the details we have of Jesus. Have a look. Verse 42, what happens? He prays. Now that's not unique. Jesus prays all the time. Take note, he prays to his father. Now that's common for us in the Christian world to pray to God as father, but in the Jewish world, very rare. They didn't think of God that way. Jesus did, though. So it indicates intimacy and a relationship, an existing relationship, Father. But that's not what I want you to pay attention to. Look at verse 44 and try and look and think about his emotions. What emotion is Jesus displaying here? Verse 44. He's in anguish. And that word means distress. 
We're then told he sweats drops of blood. And that's a medical condition that occurs under times of extreme distress. Here we have a picture of Jesus, anxious, nervous, distressed. And that might not strike you particularly as unique because you might get anxious all the time. But let me assure you, when you think about the life of Jesus, when you look into the life of Jesus, you understand this is unheard of. Jesus never displays anguish and distress. He never displays fear. He has looked murder in the eyes previously and been completely unmoved. He stands toe-to-toe with the authorities of his day and is completely unafraid. There is no fear in Jesus No anguish, no distress until now. Why? Well, we know he knows he's about to die. He's just told his disciples that in the Last Supper together. But that can't be the cause of his distress. Why? Because he hasn't just predicted his death. He's predicted his resurrection. He knows what's going to happen. So why on earth, if he's looking towards his death, would he be so upset when he knows that three days later he's coming back from the dead? It doesn't make any sense. As I said to you before, I used to believe that it was the brutality of crucifixion that caused so much anguish. But that's not what the evidence says. It's completely absent. We have the evidence in front of us, though. Look at verse 42. It's staring us right in the face. What does Jesus pray about? Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. What's he mean, take this cup? What's the cup? Well, cup in the Old Testament of the Bible is a metaphor And it's a metaphor that signifies the judgment of God. Now, it's important we understand and define that word judgment. Judgment in our culture is separate from punishment. You stand before a judge, he, she finds you guilty, whatever. Then you're sent to prison and at prison you do the punishment. So we think they're separate things. Very important we understand judgment in the Bible contains both adjudication and punishment simultaneously. Cup, the metaphor in the Old Testament of the Bible, represents God's judgment being poured out on wicked people. Sometimes his own people, sometimes the enemies of his own people. It's this cup that terrifies Jesus, but it's also worth noting who has control of the cup. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. It's the Lord's cup. Of judgment. He's the one who controls it. In other words, Jesus is saying, God, stop your judgment from occurring if it's in your will. What causes so much anxious and anxiety and distress in Jesus? The thought of his father's judgment. Hold on. But that doesn't make any sense. Because why on earth would his father be judging his son? After all, If you read the biographies of Jesus, you will see the claim is that Jesus is without sin. What that means is he's not deserving of judgment. Judgment from God is poured out upon the wicked. 
So why would Jesus, the claim of which is made, he is perfect and without sin, be scared of judgment for sin? Judgment's a funny topic. It's not funny. It's an interesting topic, isn't it? None of us like it. The idea of people looking down on us and adjudicating on our character or clothes or personalities. Growing up, I felt it intently. I was the youngest of five children, and all four of my siblings were phenomenal. And that is disgusting, isn't it? It was the worst. So I was very keen sense of when people were looking down at me. But there was one type of judgment I hated above all others. That was the judgment that I received when I'd been caught out actually doing something wrong. That was the worst. Because with that judgment came another emotion called guilt. And here's the thing about guilt. You don't feel guilt unless you are guilty. And that's the worst feeling of all time. Far better to stick your head in the sand and pretend you're not guilty at all. You see, this is what is so striking about this account of Jesus. Jesus is calling God Father. You with me? A sign of intimacy. It's not like their relationship is broken down. But he's also saying to him, God, do not, if you're willing, take, do not judge me for being evil, for being guilty. So what does it mean? And it's here. I want to take you to the third piece of evidence. Now remember, so far, Jesus on the cross. Evidence number two, Jesus with the cup. Evidence number three, Jesus and the criminal. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Jesus' death, you will know that Jesus is not crucified on his own. He's crucified between two other men. What do we know about these men? Very little, actually. We know they were criminals, and actually specifically that they were thieves. It's very unlikely they were small-time pickpockets and shoplifters, though, because that wasn't the punishment. Death wasn't the punishment for those things in the ancient world. So they most likely would have been long-standing criminals, big-time criminals. The only other detail we know predominantly from the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, is that up until the very interaction we're about to look at, both of these men mocked Jesus on the cross. Both of them. Both of them turned and made fun of him the same way that all the other people around besides Jesus' disciples were doing the exact same thing. So we have Jesus on the cross just before his final moments. Criminal on the right, criminal on the left. Then Jesus does something. You'll see it in your account in Luke. He prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Now Jesus is praying for the men crucifying him, for the men and women mocking him. He's also praying for the people crucified with him. And then something remarkable happens. Look at Luke 23, verse 39. Just look at three verses here. Luke 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourselves and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, I want to make it very clear to you that this is a remarkable scene, historically speaking. You have the cross, the crosses, the, the crucified, the interactions, Jesus praying for forgiveness, the man at that very final moment realizing that the judgment he's facing, the biggest judgment he's facing, is not death on the cross, but is the judgment he will face when he dies, when he faces God as all of us will when we leave this life. 
All of that is incredible, but I don't want you to focus on that. Instead, listen to Jesus' reply, verse 43. Jesus answered him, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. I understand it's very possible that you don't quite feel the tension in that answer. So what? Jesus is giving him a get-out-of-jail-free card. No, no, no. You need to grasp hold of the fact that what Jesus has just said here is quite possibly the most countercultural, counter-religious, and even personally confrontational thing imaginable. Jesus tells this man he can get to heaven. But how on earth can Jesus actually say that? This man is a criminal, a thief, a robber. There is no indication of any religiosity in his past. No mention of giving money to charity or going to church or keeping the commandments. But not just that, no indication of even any moral goodness. There's no indication this man's a Robin Hood who is stealing from the rich to give to the poor. Nothing at all. In fact, the only details we have about this man are what? His criminality. And the fact that a minute prior to this interaction, he was mocking Jesus. So how on earth can this man get to heaven after all? Who is heaven for? Well, if you're like the vast majority of Aussies, you would answer that question by saying heaven is for good people. Heaven is for people who've done good things. Heaven is for people who haven't done evil and wicked things. Heaven is for people who are loving and kind and tolerant. Or perhaps you've got a religious background and say heaven is for people who've gone to church or gone to mass or gone to mosque or gone to synagogue. Heaven is for people who've done these things. And yet here we have, as clear as day, the proof. That when Jesus talks about heaven, he is not talking about a place reserved for good people. The proof that the idea that heaven is a place reserved for the moral or the religious, those who've done good or religious things, cannot exist in the reality that Jesus presents. Because if it did, this man would be condemned. So let's take a step back. We've got three separate pieces of evidence. Jesus on the cross, the darkened sky, the torn curtain. Jesus in the garden, the cup, the judgment. Jesus on the cross again with the criminal, forgiving his sins and allowing him into paradise. What is this evidence showing us even deeper than that? How is all of these things evidence of God's existence and his love? Well, let me suggest to you at the moment that if you're struggling to see the relevance, it might be time to come to grips with the fact that the problem isn't the evidence. The problem is rather how you're viewing the evidence. I spent a lifetime hearing these details about Jesus and it meant nothing until suddenly someone explained it to me and it did. Very recently, my wife and I went to see um, The Dry at the Avoca Cinemas. Has anyone seen The Dry? Oh, you've got to see it. It's the best Australian film since Young Einstein, I reckon. It's just... (laughs) Everyone under 40 is like, young what? But nonetheless, it's a mystery of whodunit. I read the book. It's a terrific book. 
And I like to try and guess what happens in these things. And I had no idea. I got to the last page and I'm like, whoa. So I was really looking forward to going with my wife um, and watching her get confused and baffled as well. It's the small little wins you get. But unfortunately, my wife is a very keen television detective. Okay, and so <laughs> we're sitting there in the, in the movie and 15 minutes in, she leans over and whispers, oi, oi, they did it and this is why. It was horrible. <laughs> she was absolutely right. It was disgusting. And the only little victory I could get was being like, no, no, no. But she got it right. She enveloped layers, developed layers of the film for me I'd never even considered before. It was amazing. That's the thing about mysteries, isn't it? They're often not mysterious. One person can view it one way, someone else can be completely baffled. I want to suggest to you today that the death of Jesus is not a mystery, even though it might well have mystified you for your life. But it's very possible that you have missed a crucial component, or perhaps even, like I was, distracted by something else. What happened on the cross? It's all, all about who killed Jesus. Come back to Luke 23, 44. We have the cross. Jesus hanging there, dying. But suddenly the sky goes dark. In the garden you have the cup. Jesus crying out about God's judgment. Back to the cross again. You have the criminal, a man deserving of judgment, yet being set free. What's it about? If you remember, on the cross, or as you read it there, as Jesus lies dying, the sky goes dark. What's that about? Well, in the Old Testament of the Bible, this supernatural darkening of the sky is a sign of God's judgment being poured out. In the garden, we have Jesus crying out, Father, take your judgment from me, take your cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. What was in the cup? God's judgment. Whose will was it that controlled the judgment? It was God's. On the cross, the cup that Jesus must drink from, the judgment that he would take, was poured out upon him by God. God poured out his judgment, a judgment so severe that an eternity in hell will not suffice it. He poured out his judgment, the judgment reserved for the wicked upon the perfect. Who killed Jesus? I used to think the Romans killed Jesus or the Jews killed Jesus. Or when I was trying to be clever in youth group, I'd say, I did. No. The book of Isaiah puts it this way. It was the Lord's will to crush him. But why would God, who loved Jesus more than we can imagine, willingly crush his own son? 
Because despite an eternity, despite a lifetime of every single person in this room and every single person on the planet rejecting God, God loves people. Think of the thief on the cross. What was it that would have prevented him from entering into heaven? His sin. The way that he treated God, the way that he treated other people. In fact, the Bible says after he died, he would have faced God in judgment. He would have been found guilty because he was guilty. Think of the curtain in the temple. The curtain in the temple represented the separation between God and people brought about by sin. So why did Jesus get crushed on the cross by God? Because even though people are sinners, God loves people. And so on the cross, God took the sin of every believer of every generation and he put it onto Jesus' soul. He put it as a burden for Jesus to carry. And on the cross, the brutality, the real horror of the cross was not the barbaric crucifixion, but was the unceasing, terrifying wrath of God being poured out on his own son. Jesus took that punishment because God loves people. He took the punishment of the thief on the cross He took the judgment that he deserved to have poured out. And so as he died, the curtain of the temple that symbolized the separation between God and people brought about by sin was torn, not from bottom to top by humans tearing it, but from top to bottom, God has taken it away. And on the cross, Jesus cried out, into my hands, into your hands I commit my spirit, showing for all of us that it was his Father who is in charge of it all. But now the big question that I hope some of you are asking, I hope, how does that prove that God loves me? How does that prove that God's here? How how is any of this evidence? Well, you see, I promised at the start that there would be several truths about ourselves we would have to look at today, which will be confrontational. This is it. Because the truth is, Jesus didn't just die for the thief on the cross. He died for you. He died because you're not good enough for God. Neither am I. He died because on our own, we can't get to heaven. Why? Because we sin. Sin means rejecting God, turning away from Him. God's standard is perfection. And that means even if you've only sinned once in your life, please, but even if you've only sinned once in your life, you will not make it. You are a sinner and you need to be rescued. I don't know if you remember the film The Titanic. It's quite old now, of course. There's a scene in that film that's especially memorable. The the ship, the Titanic, which was called The Unsinkable. 
you know, it strikes the iceberg, but at first, very few people are aware that it happened and very few people are aware of the danger. Um, after it hits the iceberg, the cameras then pan to the first-class dining room and you've got all the people dancing and partying and drinking and carrying on, completely oblivious to the fact that in one hour's time, 2,000 of them will be dead on the bottom of the Atlantic. However, some people do know. The ship's engineer is an Irishman. His name's Mr Anderson and he's walking around the deck you know, wide-eyed. He knows what's happening. Rose, the character played by Kate Winslet, the main character, she goes up to him, she's seen it, and she comes up to him and says, Mr Anderson, tell me the truth. Are we in danger? And he looks at her and says, yes. She says, what kind of danger? He says, in one hour's time, this ship will be on the bottom of the ocean floor. Tell the people you must. Don't tell everyone. We don't want to panic. But whatever you do, get to a lifeboat. My dear friends, you will never, ever understand the cross. You will never, ever understand Christianity. You will never, ever, ever understand your life until you understand that you need to be rescued. You are in a titanic situation. And we can replace the scene of dancing and eating fine food with buying a house or going to the beach or going to kids' sport or whatever it is that consumes us. But we are on a ship that is sinking. We need to be rescued. And yet the good news, the great news of the life and death of Jesus Christ is that despite living your entire life rejecting God, God loves you. Isn't that incredible? And he doesn't love you because you're so lovable. Fuck, I'm sure you you are partially lovable. He loves you even though you're not. And because God loves you, he sent Jesus to rescue you. Jesus took the judgment you and I deserve and he proved it by three days later rising from the dead. So let me ask you, do you consider this evidence, the evidence we have in the Bible, to be good news? I wonder, do you consider it to be convincing and compelling? You see, what I've found so fascinating about this series is that all of us have a very different opinion about what good news actually is. What's good news for you might be very bad news for me. And in fact, all of us have very different ideas of what good news compared to what God might say is good news. What I'm getting at is this. The consequences of the good news we've just heard mean you must accept the mercy and the love you've been shown by God. You must follow Jesus as your king. The options before us are very, very clear. You can reject Jesus and by rejecting him, face judgment on your own, knowing what's coming. Or you can accept him 
That's the choice you must make. It may well be that you've heard the evidence, you've, you've heard the story, and you, you're yet to be convinced. You're at the point in your life where you're like, well, I, I kind of understand it, I'm not sure I understand it, or I do understand it, and I think it's rubbish. I'm not willing to take it on yet. If that is you, I just want to say one thing to you, which is please, please, don't stop looking into it. Don't consider today to be the day that you've got all your questions answered and you think it's junk. Consider today to be the beginning of looking into it. As we heard before, we've got a series called Life, just starting on Tuesday night. There'll be a bunch of us there looking at Jesus and the evidence and the history and what it's all about. Please come along. We'd love to have you there. Please keep looking. This is too important for you to just push to the side. However, I also know that for some of you here today, for many of us here today, the news of Jesus is the best news we've ever heard. It's incredible news. And it might well be that today for you, for the very first time, God has been doing a work in your heart, revealing to you the truth that God loves you, that Jesus died for you, that you can accept it. And if that is you, then I want to give you an opportunity today to do exactly what the thief on the cross did. Accept the gift that Jesus has given you. To turn to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. You see, Jesus doesn't say, to accept my gift, you've got to start going to church and giving money and being... He simply says, accept my gift. And so what we're going to do now as we finish is we're going to pray I want to say prayer isn't magical, Harry Potter, hocus-pocus words. Prayer is just ordinary people like us talking to an extraordinary God, the God who made us and loves us. And if you're in a position today where you're like, you know what, I do want to put my faith in Jesus. I do want to accept the gift he's given me. Then I'd love to encourage you to just pray along with me. Repeat the words I say in your head and your heart. And let's talk to God, understanding how good he is. So let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, I know I have rebelled against you in my thinking, in my speaking, in my actions. Lord, I'm sorry that I've done that. I understand that Jesus walked to the cross and took the punishment I deserve from you. I understand what that means. I also know, Lord, that without Jesus, I am lost. Please forgive me and cleanse me from all of my sins. Give me the gift of eternal life. Help me to follow Jesus, not just as my Saviour, but also as my Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, friends, if you have prayed that prayer, that is the best news ever. One of the things we'd love to encourage you to do, though, is not keep it to yourself. There's going to be a phone number flashing up on the screen uh, now. We'd love for you to text in just the word prayed. Um, and one of us will get in touch with you and just talk to you about life and Jesus and what it means. Also, love to encourage you to come along to the Life Series uh, on Tuesday night. But please take advantage of that. You don't have to do this on your own. We do it together as a family. Love to encourage you to do that.